there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If diamonds are your best friend and you love jewelry and you want to learn more about the diamond industry, then this is the episode for you, my friends, because my next guest comes from a family of diamond experts who today runs his own concierge diamond business in California. But before I introduce you to Dan Moran, the president and founder of Concierge Diamonds, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek at the episodes and the professionals we're going to be releasing that week. And it is super easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my diamond and sparkly gem lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dan Moran, who is president and founder of Concierge Diamonds in LA. Dan comes from a family of diamond experts. His parents were diamond dealers for 30 years in New York City's famous diamond district. And his great uncle was a founder of the Israeli Diamond Exchange, which is the world's largest diamond exchange and the center of Israel's diamond industry. Dan initially resisted jumping into the family business and had planned to work in biological engineering, but he spent the years after graduating from college as a serial entrepreneur in diverse industries like computer software, online gaming, and merchant services. But eventually, he got bitten by the bug, and after a decade of working for other companies, Dan launched Concierge Diamonds from his kitchen table in 2012. Just like me, I launched Time for Coffee from my kitchen table in 2018. The company has since grown to many more employees with offices in Los Angeles and San Francisco and has an enviable client list. Today, Dan merges his personal and professional passions, that is flying and diamonds, by flying his own company plane with his diamond creations out to deliver them to his clients himself. Dan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Well, I'm bouncing off the walls. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my God. Well, fortunately, you work with mostly hard substances. So I'm guessing <laughs> like if a coffee cup were to accidentally bump into a beautiful jewel, that wouldn't necessarily mean that- It'll be a bad day for the coffee, but, uh, but the jewel <laughs> okay. will be fine. All right. Fantastic. Well, before we get into what you do as the president of Concierge Diamonds and how you built your career eventually going into the family business, or I should say the family industry because you created your own business, right. how difficult is it, Dan, for someone, maybe our listeners today, whose family isn't in the diamond business to break into this profession? You know, it can be challenging because our business is one that's based on trust. And you'll find that a lot of companies in my industry are family businesses because when you're working with very small, very valuable, untraceable commodities every day, family is the obvious people you can trust. 
But that being said, there are opportunities to break into this industry. If you're determined and if you're passionate, you'll get in if you want to badly enough and people will respect and value you for that. So certainly I have in my office, I'm proud and honored and lucky to work with a number of people who got into this industry because they were passionate and loved it and approached me saying, hey, how can I make this happen for myself? One thing led to another and here they are. So it's doable if you want it badly enough. What advice do you have, Dan, for those who don't have a blood relative in the industry? Is there a better way to actually start out, maybe a better track to take? So there are continuing education courses after school that you can get into, uh, notably from the GIA, the Gemological Institute of America. They have classes both on their campus in Southern California and online. Those would be a good way for you to not only get some knowledge, but also to meet other people who are in the industry and share your passion and your interest in it. And there are networking opportunities that come from there. Beyond that, I would say find a jeweler or a diamond industry expert who you admire. There's lots of us who are active online. You can find people on Reddit or Instagram or Facebook or you know all over the internet. See who you admire, whose style and whose approach speaks to you, and try to contact those people and ask them for their advice. You'd never know where it's going to lead. Can you tell, Dan, by looking at whether it's a Harry Winston's or a Tiffany's or whatever the big chain is, can you tell that certain diamonds, let's just pick that jewel for now, Sure, have the style of that company or are they kind of all over the map? No, well, you can't tell from a diamond. You know, a loose diamond is what it is and it's a commodity. And so I can't look at a diamond and say this is from Harry Winston or from Tiffany or Cartier or what have you. But a finished piece of jewelry, say a ring, yes, I absolutely can. I can say this is a classic Harry Winston design, or this is something you found in Chamay, or this might be a Van Cleef, or this might be a Hermes kind of a piece. Now, do you know that definitively? No, not without looking more closely. But for example, if I see a round diamond with two long tapered baguettes in a platinum setting, if it wasn't made by Harry Winston, it was inspired by him for sure. So yes, of course, there are signature styles. And I'd like to think that, you know, 50 years from now, somebody might look at a piece and say, this is a Dan Moran signature style. What is your style? Well, I tend to the very clean, contemporary, modern approach to rings. I tend to take a very pragmatic approach, which is to say, I try to avoid pieces that will have ornamentation that's not likely to be practical for everyday life. If a ring looks beautiful, but it snags on every sweater, that's not a good ring. I like to design pieces that are meant to be worn, that are meant to be enjoyed on a daily basis. I'm a big believer in the old saying that, you know, a ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. So I like to design rings that are meant to be lived in and that are meant to be enjoyed on a daily basis, that have clean lines and a very focused design to bring attention to the stones that I'm so passionate about. Nice. So in a few minutes, I'm going to want to get into how you started out in this business. Sure. But first, I would love to know what you do as the president of Concierge Diamonds and what it is about your business, your business, that is different from a Tiffany's or a Blue Nile or a Harry Winston's. Well, on a daily basis, I'd love to know too, because every day is different. But as a general rule, you know, what I'm doing is I have a number of duties in my company that really I'm the only one can handle. So I do all of the buying. If a stone is entering the company's inventory, that means I have personally 
inspected it, decided it's up to my standards, and negotiated a price for it with one of my suppliers. Likewise, no ring ever leaves this office to a client without my personal. I spend a good chunk of my day going over every piece that we're planning to ship, and we'll typically ship you know, between 75 and 100 rings a month. So I spend a good amount of time inspecting my jewelry, both as finished pieces and during the production process. There are several moments in a production process where I'll say, okay, I'd like to inspect the diamonds we're planning to set prior to setting. I'd like to inspect the gold casting prior to it being cleaned and polished. I'd like to inspect the prongs to make sure that they're strong and sturdy and well-proportioned. So I do a fair amount of jewelry inspection. And I've got people on my team who are trained to do that as well. I've taught them my way of doing it. They will spot most of the issues before they come across my desk. So I'm pleased to say that most of the time I'm inspecting these days, it's getting a thumbs up because issues have already been addressed. But every now and then I'll still find something. And I think it's important for my clients to know that I've given each ring my personal attention. So I spend a fair amount of time on that. So there's buying, there's quality assurance. And then of course there's management. I have 10 employees to manage. So I'm helping them with whatever they're working with, with their clients or their suppliers or all the internal running a small business stuff, right? Whether it's health insurance or taxes or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And of course, a big chunk of my day is spent with my clients. So I work with clients myself as well. Either I'm selecting stones and sending pictures to clients or I'm meeting with them personally in the office or I'm corresponding with them via phone or email or whatever the case may be. And then the other big task that I do is I spend an awful lot of my time online answering questions. I'm very active on Reddit where I go by the username Diamond Dealer. Feel free to look me up. And I spend many hours every day just trying to help people with questions about jewelry and diamond business and what they're looking for, whether it means any business for me or not. In fact, a lot of the time, no business comes to us as a result of it. But I think that an educated customer base is the best customer base there is. And the more you know about diamonds, the better off you are when you're looking to buy one. I spend my time that way and it works out well for me. Did you learn how to cut diamonds, Dan? So I've never cut on the wheel myself with my own hands. I know what the process is, but I know that my strength is working with my mind, not with my hands. I don't have that gift. One of my uncles did work on the wheel for about 35 years. So I'm familiar with it. I understand it. I know enough to look at a stone and to say, hey, I'd like to recut this stone this way. But then I let the person who actually does that all day do it. Got it. I was wondering how important you think it is for young people who want to get into this industry that they learn how to cut diamonds. I think that it's important that they understand how a diamond is cut, but they don't need to necessarily do it themselves. Much in the same way that if you want to be an architect, you need to understand how concrete is poured, but you don't need to go pour it yourself. Fair enough. So even though the focus of this interview is on helping our young listeners learn more Mm -hmm. about what it's like to work in this industry, I was thinking it might be fun, especially for those listeners who may be thinking about proposing to their girlfriend or their boyfriend, (laughs) whether over the holidays or at some point in the new year, for us to get to tap into your expertise, Dan, to learn more about how to buy a pretty, let alone gorgeous engagement ring without going into debt. Well, I would love to help with that. To me, it's really all about setting a few things. I typically will ask a client just a few questions. And when I know the answers to those questions, I'm 90% of the way there to finding the right stone and the right ring fit. So here are the questions I would encourage you to ask yourself. Question number one, do I want a diamond for my ring or some other stone? Most people propose with a diamond, but some people look at sapphires or emeralds or other precious stones. So that's question one. Question two, assuming it's a diamond, what shape of diamonds do I want? Do I want a round? Do I want an oval? Do I want a cushion cut or a princess cut? What shape? Question three, what color of metal am I thinking about for my ring? 
white gold, yellow gold, rose gold, platinum. That will help for me as your jeweler to know what colors of diamonds to show you that will go well with that metal type. Next question, question four. Am I planning on a fairly simple minimalist ring or a more elaborate ring with lots of little diamonds and all kinds of stuff going on? And then question five, probably the most important one, what is my budget? You don't need to know to the last penny, but you need to know well enough to get a ballpark so the person you're working with can send you in the right direction. Once I know the answers to those five questions, I can start to help you sorting through diamonds and looking for particular stones. Typically, once we pick a stone, then we'll design a ring together to complement both the person wearing it and the stone to bring the best out of both. That's the decision tree that I like to walk through with every client. And I recommend you walk through it yourself before you make that first phone call if you can. Is there one or more of those five questions that you have that would really be a determining factor for the price? Like if they don't care if it's a diamond, I'm guessing that might bring the price down. If they don't care about the kind of cut, is there a cheaper cut that they could have? They could. That's a fair question. That's a fair question. So you're right. Diamond is probably one of the more expensive precious stones out there, although certainly there are others that are as expensive. If you're looking for an original stone, you might save some money. But as far as within the world of diamonds, all else being equal, round is the most expensive cut by about 25%. So take a same carat weight, same color, clarity, et cetera, et cetera. Round will be the most expensive. And beyond that, that, oh, I'm sorry, I did. No, no, go ahead. No, there are two reasons why that's actually pretty interesting, I think. But I could talk about this all day. I'm trying not to go on and on. But there are two reasons why round is the most expensive. The first is the optics of it. The physics of the nature of diamond dictates that of all cuts, round returns the most light. So pound for pound, round will be the sparkliest. There's just no getting around it. That's physics. The inside baseball reason why round is the most expensive cut is when you're cutting from a rough diamond to a round, you waste more material cutting to round than to any other shape. So polishing a diamond removes more material when you're making a round than any other shape. So Cutters buy the rough diamond by their weight. There's more waste making around than any other shape. So our cost of manufacturing is higher, which leads to a higher cost to the finished piece. Gotcha. And there are also the four C's. Could you explain yes. what they are and help us to understand which ones are the most important to look out for? Absolutely. This is a short question with a long answer. So I'll shamelessly plug. If you want the long answer, go to the YouTube channel for Concierge Diamonds. And I have about a 30-minute video on just this topic because there oh really is God. a lot. Yeah, I won't go that deep right now. But in general, the four Cs, which are the primary determinants of a diamond's value, are carat weight, color, clarity, and cut. <clears throat> to take just a few seconds on each one, carat weight's very simple. You put the stone on a scale, how much does it weigh? If anybody is curious, a carat is one-fifth of a gram. Five carats is one gram. It's important to bear in mind that the relationship between carat weight and price is not linear, it is exponential. So as the carat weight goes up a little, the price can go up a lot. So be careful with that. As far as color goes, a diamond's a product of nature. It's a crystal that's made out of carbon. But those carbon crystals formed deep underground billions of years ago. And there are typically other chemicals present in the ground there along with that liquid pre-crystallized carbon, sometimes nitrogen, iron, whatever else. And those other chemicals can mix into the liquid carbon and give the resulting diamond an overtone of color. So the more color a diamond has to it, the less expensive that diamond will be. The more pure, clear white the diamond is, the more expensive it will be. So you really have to look at a range of colors and ask yourself how white is white enough without breaking the bank. Similarly with clarity, when that crystal forms underground, 
there are always flaws or imperfections in the crystal because it never forms perfectly. The more of those flaws are present and the larger they are, the less expensive the diamond can be. Now, my philosophy is that a diamond should be clean enough that there are no obvious flaws that bother your naked eye. But once it's clean enough that it's so-called eye clean in the business, clean enough for the naked eye, that should be good enough for just about anybody. You don't need a gemologically flawless diamond for it to be beautiful. My wife is wearing a diamond right now that is far from gemologically flawless because we decided that other aspects of the diamond were more important to us, the color, the size, the cut, etc. So you don't need a flawless diamond for it to be beautiful. And most people are surprised how low on the clarity scale you can go and still have a diamond that looks totally clean. Now, our fourth C is cut. Cut is actually pretty darn important. At the end of the day, it's the cut that makes a diamond sparkle. The message I want to leave you with on cut is if you take the best rough diamond in the history of the world, right, the perfect rough diamond, and you cut it poorly, it won't sparkle. But if you take even a so-so rough diamond and you cut it perfectly, it'll look like a million bucks. Remember, the only reason diamonds are valuable in the first place is because they sparkle. And the reason why they sparkle is because they are prisms. They bend light and refract light very powerfully. The ideal cut of a stone is designed to maximize their effectiveness at doing that. So in simplest terms, the better the quality of a diamond cut, the more it will sparkle. So don't compromise on that. That is my super quick version of the four C's. Like I said, there's a much more in-depth version online. I encourage you to check it out. Wow. That was an amazing overview, Dan. That's like the best overview I've ever heard. I have a whole different understanding, better understanding now of the four C's and what really matters. Well, I may have done this once or twice before. (laughs) Yeah, I think you have. I think you have. What are lab-grown diamonds? I honestly had never heard of this before. You know, they're a relatively new phenomenon in the consumer marketplace. So-called lab-grown or synthetic diamonds. For about 40 years now, we as an industry have had the technology to replicate the conditions under which diamonds formed underground in a factory setting, in a lab setting. We are able to produce new diamonds using technology, and they are chemically virtually identical to natural diamonds. You can identify the difference between a natural and a synthetic using specialized equipment, but to the naked eye, it's virtually impossible to do that. These synthetic diamonds, these lab-grown diamonds, are less expensive than a naturally occurring diamond. They might be tempting for a young person thinking about proposing to say, hey, listen, I can save 25 or 30 or 35% by buying a lab-grown versus buying a natural. Sounds great. But unlike a natural diamond, a synthetic diamond, a lab-grown, and by the way, saying lab-grown is a little bit of a misnomer. It's the term that these manufacturers want you to use because when you say the word lab-grown, it conjures an image of a scientist in a white coat running experiments. Right. These are not labs. They're not doing science. These stones are not grown in a lab. They're mass produced in a factory, typically in China. So these manufactured diamonds, while they are 75 cents on the dollar compared to a natural diamond, a natural diamond is valuable in part because they are rare and scarce. Currently, demand exceeds supply, and that trend is expected to increase dramatically over the next few years as some of the largest diamond mines in the world are getting ready to close. You may or may not know this, but four out of five of the largest diamond mines in the world are scheduled to close in the next five years because they're just running out. We've gotten all the diamonds that are there. So supply globally peaked in 2006 and has been declining ever since. Meanwhile, demand continues to increase as China and a lot of other parts of Eastern Asia suddenly have a huge middle class and they want luxury goods. So demand for diamonds is increasing. Supply is decreasing. Economics 101 tells you the price of natural diamonds will continue to rise. But 
That's not true for the synthetic diamonds, for the lab growths. They are not supply constrained. And in fact, at least today, there's essentially no secondary market for them. Meaning if you go and buy a lab-grown diamond today, and for whatever reason you find yourself needing to sell it tomorrow, there's no one who will buy it at any price. Why would a lab-grown diamond company buy your synthetic when they can just manufacture another one whenever they want to? To me, the difference between buying a natural diamond and a lab-grown diamond is the best way I can explain it is by analogy. Let's say there's a house that you want to live in, and you can either buy it and pay a $10,000 a month mortgage or rent it for $7,000 a month. Yeah, you're saving 30% by renting it, but you're not building any equity. You don't own anything. If you don't care, by all means, buy a synthetic. But if you want something that's going to be inherently valuable, which I think something as important as an engagement ring should be, you got to stick to natural. I was actually wondering if that could be another career track for people who are interested in this industry. And like you, Dan, had a background or have a background in biology maybe Mm -hmm. chemistry or something like that to get into the lab side of the business? Well, there certainly is an opportunity. And I don't mean when I say that the inherent value isn't there, that means it's not going to be a good industry. I think it is. I think the future of the synthetic diamond business will come in fashion jewelry and in so-called, I don't want to say disposable, but less important jewelry. You know, you want to buy a pair of earrings that you're only going to wear twice a year. Sure, save some money. So there is opportunity in that side of things. Although, I mean, yes, the science is advancing, but for the most part, it's kind of a solved problem. It's now going to be more about engineering and making them more efficient. The prices of these synthetics are falling very rapidly, and that's driven by ever-advancing technology. So there is opportunity there for sure. Just be ready that you're getting into an industry that their fundamental product is going to lose value every year. Mm, Yeah, but could be a great way to enter the industry and start learning about it. All right. So let's flash back to when you were an undergrad, Dan. You went to Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California, and it's a private liberal arts college of science, engineering, and mathematics. And you got a BS in biology and government. Did you know what you were going to do with those degrees. No, when you graduated. No, No, I mean, I didn't know it was going to happen. I knew what my plan was. So I'm a dual citizen of the United States and Israel. And at the time, I was very interested in biological and chemical weapons. Now, to be clear, I mean, dismantling of not production, because as an Israeli, you think about this stuff a lot. What would we do if in these nightmare scenarios? So at the time, I was very interested in working in those fields and trying to figure out how to solve that world problem. Those dreams came to a crashing halt when I had my first interview with the NSA, recruited on campus. And that interview lasted about 20 seconds because they said, oh, I see you're a dual citizen. We can never hire you. You'll never get a security clearance. Thanks for coming. That was the response that I got everywhere that I was interested in. It became clear to me that wasn't a career path that was going to be viable for me. But that was actually okay because at the same time, my experience, my last couple of years of college, I had a lot of time in the lab doing pure science. And I came to realize that while the results of that lab work are fascinating and very important to me, the actual day-to-day work of being in the lab just wasn't for me. I wasn't cut out for that. I need to be around people and talking and interacting with people and being in people's lives and doing pure science just isn't that. Between the vanishing opportunity for reasons outside of my control that I hadn't been aware of and my self-realization that maybe this wasn't the right career path for me anyway, I decided to strike out in a different direction. I'm glad I did. So what was your first job and how did you get it? Well, I resisted going into the diamond business for as long as I could. My family's been in this business for many decades and 
my parents very much wanted me to come and work with them in their business in New York, but I wanted to do my own thing and kind of make my own success candidly because I was young and foolish. All you young people listening to me now, if your parents want to help you, oh my gosh, let them. <laughs> if I was crazy. I was crazy enough to take that help. I decided along with some classmates of mine, we founded a company in software. And this was in 1998 when we started that company just prior to my graduation. So it was the height of the dot-com boom. And we were making advertising products for online various enterprises. Then the dot-com crash happened a few years later and we wound up stuck working with all of our clients were people who could no longer afford to pay their bills. Eventually that business failed. I started another business in merchant services with another friend of mine. The business actually went very well, but due to some conflicts with my partners, I decided to part ways with them. I stepped away from that business. And it was about that time that my uncle, who at the time was one of the top 40 largest diamond cutters in the world, set, called me up and said, listen, I heard you wound down the enterprise you were working in. Have you had your fun yet? Are you ready to get to real work now? And I said, you know what? I'll give it a shot. I went to Israel and I apprenticed there with him for about three months. By the time that three months was over, I was saying to myself, why did I wait so long to do this? I love this. I like the immediacy of it. I like the very one-on-one face-to-face nature of the business. I enjoyed learning the technical aspects of Diamond Cut and how to improve it and how to preserve it. It really spoke to me. So I worked with my uncle for almost three years. I opened an office for his company in Los Angeles. We had a partnership here. After about three years of that, it became clear to me that working in the family business wasn't going to be good for my relationship with my family. So I decided to leave the family business. A client of mine here in Los Angeles actually had been saying to me for some time, hey, listen, you know, if you ever find yourself wanting to do something else, come and talk to me. So I did. And I wound up going to work for him for about six years and learned a lot about the jewelry side of business because in my uncle's business, it had been just loose diamonds. So I spent six years doing both loose diamonds and fine jewelry. And at some point, the time came that I said, you know, I can't be an employee anymore. I've reached the limits of how far I can working under somebody else's shingle. It's time to hang my own. And that's what I did. And that was 1st of July, 2012. So here we are almost seven and a half years later. Man, you couldn't get me to go work for somebody else for all the tea in China. I am essentially unemployable at this point because <laughs> because I would be insufferable working for, working for somebody else. Yeah, you've been spoiled. <laughs> I'm ruined. I'm ruined for other things. How did you start building your clients? You know, that's always the challenge in a new business is where are you going to find those first sources of business and revenue? Now, I had had 10 years of background in the industry, so I knew a lot of people and People had come to me saying, you know, I'd love to work with you, but I don't want to work with the company you're with for this, that, or the other reason. So I started reaching out. And actually, prior to leaving my job, I reached out to a few key people that I knew, not to solicit their business, but to solicit their advice and to say to them, listen, this is what I'm thinking about doing. How crazy am I? We were just coming out of a very deep recession as a country in 2012, right? 2009, 10, 11 were not kind to the jewelry business, as I'm sure you can imagine. And people said, you know, you got to be nuts leaving a six-figure job in this market to go do something. But, you know, I think that people at the end of their lives on their deathbeds regret the things they didn't do much more than the things they did do. And I knew that if I didn't get out of my home, I was going to regret it. So I took the plunge and started hustling. And it was a combination of personal networking and people I knew from the business and from my personal life. I put a lot of effort into building my presence online, and that's paid off well for me. And, And here we are. Amazing. Really wonderful. So Dan, I have two final time for coffee questions. And these are questions I try to ask all of my guests. In particular, this one is important, I think, because 
especially for young people who are just trying to get their foot in the door, just get started in an industry. They'll look at someone like you who owns his own business, who's got seven and a half years under his belt, who's, you know, got it figured out and will say, man, I bet he never really struggled. Now, you've alluded to a couple of instances, and I was wondering if maybe you would share in a little more detail a time in your professional life when you really struggled. You mentioned having to wind down, I think it was silver platter software, and most importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Well, I'm happy to. First of all, if anybody is listening to me as an example of somebody who's got it all figured out, I don't. And by the way, neither does anybody else. There's one thing I've learned in my years in the diamond business. I've gotten to work with a lot of very successful people, wealthy people, people who are accomplished. Nobody has it all figured out. We're all faking it. Don't make yourself think that, wow, if only I had it as together as so-and-so, I'd be doing great. So-and-so struggles just like you do. I struggle just like you do. I put my pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else. The people who have quote unquote made it aren't any better than you. We've just spent more time failing than you. You know, I failed for 20 years and all of a sudden I was a success. That's how it works. At the end of the day, there's one character trait that is more strongly associated with success than any other. It's not intelligence. The world is full of brilliant failures and it's not charisma. It's persistence. Persistence is very closely correlated to success. Your ability to succeed in my business or in any other will be directly proportional to your ability to get kicked in the teeth and keep going. That's what it is. Have I had moments? Absolutely. I've had moments when I wanted to pack it all in. I still have moments where I have a little baby panic attack in my car on the way to or from work with some regularity where I go, oh my gosh, you know, things are going great, but the faucet could shut off tomorrow. And what would I do? And how would I feed my kids? Believe me, I have those worries the same as everybody else does. A few specific moments. So I had an incident when I was about six months into Concierge Diamonds. We were far from established. I had just rented my first office. And the idea of having that, whatever it was, $1,500 monthly rent, oh, plus an internet bill, plus a phone bill, plus this, plus that. And I'd hired an employee. All of a sudden, I had about a $6,000, $7,000 monthly overhead that had to be met before I, Dan, took home one penny. It hit me that you know when you're the boss, you get paid last. And I said to myself, you know, you've got to generate this money because you have an employee who's counting on you to pay rent. You signed a contract with a lease and with whatever else and your insurance and this and that. Those people have to get paid no matter what. So time to put on your big boy pants and go make it happen. You signed up for this. Not long after I took on those commitments, I had a client without ascribing motivation to him, was either unwilling or unable to pay for a diamond that I had already delivered. Put me in about a $25,000 hole. Oof. Yeah. And it was brutal. I had just taken on all these obligations. I didn't have an extra $25,000 lying around and I had to figure it out. Now, the client did eventually make good. It took him about three months. He did eventually make good. And in the meanwhile, I took on some debt. I talked to my suppliers. I was able to find a way to bridge that 90-day gap. I was willing to sell my car if I had to to pay it. It didn't come to that, but I was thinking about it. But that was a low point of me saying, gosh, you know, through no fault of my own, I think, I find myself in this jam. And then I said to myself, you know, you can't say through no fault of your own. You decided to give that guy the stone and give him the credit. This was a risk you took as a business owner. So own it, you know, don't wallow, go figure it out. And I did. 
And here we are. So that's just one example. But yeah, no, listen, I've wound down businesses before. You know, my first company, my software company, we raised four and a half million dollars of investor money. And I had to make those phone calls and say, listen, guys, it's 100% loss. The business cratered. And so I've certainly had a lot of low points and a lot of failures. At the end of the day, like I said, it's persistence. You just got to keep failing until you succeed. The more failures you've had, the more lessons you've learned, and the more ready you are to succeed the next time around. Oh, Dan, that was just wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it didn't feel wonderful at the time, but here we are. And listen, I have had my fair share of failures, and I couldn't agree with you more. You call it persistence. I would call it grit. I think it's, you know, the same quality, the ability to just dig in and keep putting one foot in front of the other. I agree. And by the way, I should also note, it's very important. If you're going to try to start something like this on your own, having support is, there are no words for how important it is. If I didn't have the support of my wife and my family and, you know, my friends, both emotional support, moral support, but also very real practical support. You know, my wife was working in a big corporate job that she didn't love and was hoping to do something else. And she said, listen, you have this vision, you have this dream. I got to stay at this big company so we can have health insurance and so we can have some kind of basis that if everything goes to crap, we'll still be able to, you know, afford ramen. And so she sacrificed. A lot of people helped me get where I am. And I don't pretend to be a guy who hit a home run. I know I was born on third base. And you have to remember. And of course, now my life works here with me because the business is in a place where it can support that. I'd like to think that all those risks have paid off. But until the day that I'm happily retired, you don't know for sure. Well, I can say from personal experience, because you and I met at a wedding not long ago, and I have seen maybe just one of your wife's rings, but she's doing okay, Dan. (laughs) You know, I like to think so. I like to think so. (laughs) I I work hard for in the style to which she has become accustomed. Yes. And I mean, that's just the ring. That's not talking about the man that she married. So that's the bigger gift. She deserves everything she's got and then some. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, back to Harvey Mudd, but based on the wisdom you have now, Dan, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, God, so much. So a few things. First of all, your grades will only matter for the two weeks immediately following your graduation. If you're not continuing to higher education, listen, it's about learning more than about your transcript. So learn the lessons that you can there, whether they're in class or not. You will benefit more from the people that you interact with in college than you will from the time you spend in the classroom. And that's not universally true, of course. If you're looking to be a doctor, please, by all means, pay attention in class or don't be my doctor. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But from a business perspective, it's about learning how to relate to people. And certainly college is an environment where that's important. Advice I would give, don't waste your time or energy on people who believe themselves. Because people who are constantly concerned with nothing but the downside, they'll drag you down to their level of fear and depression. And you need to recognize them for who they are and appreciate their perspective, but don't from your perspective. You know, it's a cliche that whether you think you can or you think you can't, they're going to be right. So you have to decide who you want to be. So that's one. Second thing in college is I would say, you know, maybe take some more business classes. I really didn't do any of that. And even to this day, I don't know what I don't know, right? 
I've had people with a lot of business education work for me. And at one point in my career, I remember somebody asked me if I had an MBA and I said, I have six and they work here <laughs> in, a, in a previous life. So maybe I would have benefited from those classes. Maybe I would have been better off studying somewhere else that was less hard science oriented and more business oriented. I don't know because that's not the path that I chose. But the one thing that I learned in college more than anything else, I learned how to work really hard. I learned how to give it whatever it needed to get the result I wanted. And that has served me very well throughout my life. So advice that I would give somebody in school is develop your habits now because your habits will become your character and work ethic and sharp judgments and that perseverance that we've been talking about. Start developing that now. Find yourself some adversity. If you're the smartest person in the room, you are in the wrong room. Move on. Find people who will challenge you in situations that will challenge you and push you to maximize what you're capable of. Learn your capabilities and really push the boundaries up so that when you come up to one of those life moments as a young entrepreneur, you have some basis to either have faith in yourself or know when to cut bait. And either one of those is going to be super important. So find those challenging situations. As much as it seems like when you're in school, that next semester is make or break, it doesn't really matter that much. You should not be focused on success this semester or this year or even while I'm in school. Your focus should be on maximizing the, your future success throughout your 50-year career to follow. Build up the skills that will help you to be successful in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, not just the achievements on a piece of paper that you get when you're 21 and then we'll probably never look at again. Mm. Such great advice. Focus on the learning, both inside the classroom, but even more importantly, outside the classroom and make those real connections with your classmates and with your professors, because that's the beginning of your network. That, sure. is, that is going to be what you're tapping into over the years and expanding and growing and will help you in ways you can't even imagine today, whether you go into the diamond industry or you become a podcaster. <laughs> Amen to that. Dan, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I not only learned a huge amount, and I recognize it's just a teeny tiny bit of your industry, but I learned a lot. I also really enjoyed hearing about your experiences and all of the wisdom that you have today. Well, thanks very much for having me. I can't say that I feel like I'm a wise person, but if anything I said is of value to anybody listening, I'm really happy for that. So anything I can do to help now or in the future, you all know where to find me. I'm very easy to find. And Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. <laughs>